This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome back. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. I've been really interested in expanding our understanding and our conversation around food and body image and eating disorders and how perinatal bodies change and how those changes affect our mood and our sense of self. And to that end today, we are going to be talking a little bit more about eating disorders in the perinatal period. Dr. Linda Shanti McCabe is going to be sharing with us some of her experience in helping perinatal moms, what some of the common triggers are or factors that come up for moms with eating disorder histories or some things to note about how you know old behavior patterns might be coming back up during pregnancy or postpartum, and really some good ways to cope through this period of time. Dr. Linda Shanti is going to be sharing with us today. She is a licensed clinical psychologist in California and has worked in the field of eating disorder, chemical dependency, anxiety, depression, and codependency recovery since 1999. She's served in a therapist in a variety of settings for women and their families and now has a private practice in San Francisco. Her doctoral research focused on reimagining the body using expressive arts with women recovering from bulimia, anorexia, and binge eating. Dr. Linda has completed PSIs, perinatal mood and anxiety components of care, and has completed trainings in expressive arts therapy, soul collage, and trauma. Doing this work is her true labor of love. She knows the terrain of eating disorder recovery and new mommy boot camp because she has been there. She's recovered from an eating disorder herself 20 years ago, and she is a therapist that believes that you can't keep it unless you give it away, but you can't give it away unless you have it. She's going to tell us a little bit more about what that means. She has a new book coming out, The Recovery Mama Guide to Taking Care of Your Eating Disorder, Recovery During Pregnancy and Postpartum, and it's out this coming February 2019, and you can pre-order it now. We'll talk a little bit more about that, too. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Let's meet Linda. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. 
Well, I'm very happy to continue the discussion here on eating disorders in the perinatal period and anything else you have to share with us around body image during this time. I think it's such an important topic and, you know, we don't hear enough about, and certainly I know your experience is that people don't talk enough about it mm-hmm. either. So yeah, start there. Let us know what even are eating disorders in the perinatal period and what would you like us to know about them? Well, I think the piece that often comes up for women, you know, there's all kinds of scenarios here, but is that women that have been in recovery start kind of freaking out during pregnancy and postpartum, but then there's so much shame around, oh my God, am I relapsing? Or I thought I was over this body image thing, or there's so much like perfectionism that they don't talk about it and then it gets worse and, you know, then they're back in it. Mm -hmm. That's definitely one thing I see. Yeah. Plus the whole like just culture of fat chat, like within perinatal like circles. Can you say more about that? What is that? Fat chat. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's, you know, how much weight are you gaining and how much weight are you supposed to gain and how quickly are you supposed to lose the weight postpartum and Mm -hmm. like all of that. And if you, and then all the sort of subtext of the, what eating disorder professionals call diet culture or thin inspiration or thin privilege or the thin myths around thinness, you know, which means like, if you're thin, you're happy. If you're thin, you're better. If you're thin, you're more valid or more accomplished or, you know, whatever is associated with thin air quotes. And moms really struggle with this. And I think in particular around like this myth, there's also this place I see with moms that are, you know, have a level of conscientiousness, both personally and then from a kind of social justice perspective that like they shouldn't be concerned about body image because it's a superficial, you know, concern, but at the same time they are struggling with it. So again, it kind of keeps them from talking about it. Wow. That's really fascinating. I mean, just hearing that the way that you said that, I can really see how much that happens. Wow. There's just pressure in every direction. Mm -hmm. talk about it, don't talk about it, you know, accept yourself, but then secretly having all of these feelings and, ooh, that's quite a bit. It's like a complicated weave, um, Mm -hmm. complicated web of issues that are coming up just around body image and eating. Yeah, which you don't have to have an eating disorder to be struggling with. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Actually, can you say more about that? What are the things you see moms kind of struggling with during the perinatal period related to body image, whether it's diagnosable as an eating disorder or not? Well, I think the tough thing is that it's so kind of accepted that we are swimming in diet culture that, I mean, I was in mom's groups as a new mom and that was like what you talked about. Like, Mm -hmm. have you lost their baby weight? Like I'm trying to lose the baby weight. Oh, I can't fit into my jeans yet. And all of that, at this point I had recovered from my own eating disorder, I was 13 years in recovery. And I had, you know, 10 years of working in mental health and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, I still had a hard time in those early months, like talking back to both internally and externally, those messages, like within the mom's groups, it's just Mm -hmm. so pervasive. Yeah, right. It's just kind of woven into the culture. It's woven into the culture and then it masks all these other concerns Then we don't address actually talking about. Like, 
how hard new motherhood is and how it like levels everyone and even you know people that were like super accomplished in other areas of their lives and then they have a baby and like especially those that struggle with perinatal mood disorders right right this podcast is supported by starglow media's mysteries about true histories from the creators of the hit top ranking kids educational podcast in the world who smarted the emmy nominated nat geo disney plus's brain games and netflix's brainchild comes mysteries about true histories affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. That, you know, that's not something that's easy to talk about, especially if you've been super accomplished prior to becoming a mom and then you're just totally leveled. And how do you talk about that. All right. It's easier and, to talk about losing the baby weight. Oh, all right. I see what you're saying. This sort of, it's not necessarily a superficial thing to talk about. It's just what's socially acceptable to talk about. Right. It masks the underlying tough stuff. Right. But in and of itself, it's pretty tough. Yeah. It's also tough. Right. Yeah. It's also, I mean, it's tough postpartum. I mean, I remember that, you know, having my belly feel like a deflated waterbed and being right. I should love this. I don't love this. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. And also, I appreciate what you're saying, that you don't necessarily have to have a diagnosed eating disorder to be affected by body image or eating a related stress. I mean, there's such a huge change that the body's going through anyways. I imagine it can bring up all kinds of stuff, regardless of a diagnosis or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, even looking at you know the hormonal factors, like everything that happens during pregnancy, but especially postpartum around hormone shifts and sleep changes, 
those in and of themselves, you know, before you even add this like huge steep learning curve of new motherhood, but just the hormonal shifts and the lack of sleep set people up for having difficulties with mood. And when there's difficulties with mood, there's often difficulties with food. Hmm. Right. Of course. I mean, when you say it like that, it's so, yeah, of course, it's such Mm -hmm. a simple connection, but yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, I sometimes see too that the more tired people are, the more they end up feeling hungry or needing to eat in part just to keep themselves going. Like their fuel tank from sleep is low. So they might feel more hungry or be eating in a different way because they're so tired. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, I should memorize this. I'm sorry. I don't remember it. I still have mommy brain seven and a half years out. Hey, no, I'm with you. Yeah. I work with, you know, a lot with dietitians as part of, you know, treatment teams. And they tell me about that. There is a link with your ability to accurately read your appetite cues and your hunger and satiety cues that gets disrupted with not enough sleep or with frequent awakening. Oh my gosh, that's every new month. Right? Exactly. So, I mean, I know so many recovery people call them normies, like people that haven't had eating disorders. (laughs) I know know so many moms that like, they're eating and their appetite and their hunger and satiety cues and their body image are totally thrown off in new motherhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this has to be everyone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then it's just the people with the history of an eating disorder get kind of thrown off because it's hard for them to hold it in a context of like, oh, this is just part of the terrain and sort of like bring that kind of mindful self-compassion common humanity piece. Instead, they go like, oh, my God, I'm relapsing. Oh, my God. You know. And then they go into it and they go into the shame and they go into the isolation and they go into hiding it and, you know, they go into, yeah. I mean, okay. So that makes me think too, because that happens with depression and anxiety also. Some people Uh who have a history of it and they're feeling those feelings again, have that same sort of shame spirally feeling. But man, if you have both, whoa, that is a lot. So the history of an eating disorder and then having some of those feelings come up again in itself is a trigger or, I mean, would you call it a trigger? Yeah. So back to the food and mood connection. Yeah. So, you know, the stats like one in seven or one in five more recently, you know, women struggle with a perinatal mood disorder. Yeah. So eating disorders, it's about one in 10. That's like combining anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder and eating disorder, not otherwise specified, which is most of them Uh because usually there's like, some restricting, some binging, some, you know, it's usually a combination. Anyway, so if you take those one in 10 women Mm -hmm. um, that have the eating disorder, the stats differ, but it's like 80 to 90%. Like it's a high percentage of them have a mood disorder. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Because an eating disorder is often an undiagnosed mood disorder. Right. So it's, it's coping. Right, exactly. Maladaptive coping. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So those are the women that, you know, heading into pregnancy and postpartum, they're at risk kind of on both fronts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so we're not paying enough attention, right? (laughs) We're just not paying enough attention to this. I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of, here's what I found. As an eating disorder therapist, 
that then became a new mom, like, okay, no, as a person recovered from an eating disorder, then headed into motherhood, I was looking for resources personally, you know, before I even like became it professionally, you know, I was eating disorder therapist, but I wanted to make sure I had my own support when I became pregnant and went into postpartum. So I was looking for those resources. And I think there are a lot of resources. It's just, there's not a lot of bridges between the resources. Right. Perinatal mental health providers. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, the lactation people and the dualism and midwives and OBGYNs. And then there's the eating disorder specialists and the eating disorder therapists and dietitians and blah, blah, blah. But there's not like the people that work with both. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's where I like, once I had been through it personally, was like, oh, okay, I'm going to be one of those people. I'm going to be that, you know, bridge, that resource. Well, that's awesome. And I mean, I just find it so fascinating and also sort of empowering how many people get into this specialty and like double, triple specialize because of their own experience. And it really takes people like you who see the connection and see the gaps and do something about it. Mm. I mean, your own journey has ended up and is being a support for other people, which is just beautiful. Thank you. Just like you. Yeah. That's most of us, right? Yeah, it is most yeah, of us. Yeah, we go, but once we get it, you know, you can't, keep it unless you give it away. Yes. I did want to follow up with you on that quote so that you can say a little bit more about it. So you believe that you can't keep it unless you give it away, but you can't give it away unless you have it. What does that mean to you? That means that I can't do this work unless I've done the work or, and continue to do the work personally. Right. But I can't really like really what gives it meaning for me that sustains continuing to be a service is giving it away Mm -hmm. is yeah being that resource for others you know leaning back and you know reaching a hand back I love that I love that thank you for sharing that so if we can dive in a little bit more into your work and the book also that you've written the recovery mama guide to taking care of your eating disorder recovery during pregnancy and postpartum that's coming out February 2019 correct Mm -hmm. yeah so if you can Speak to, I guess, your experience as a therapist and also any resources in your book. What are some common triggers or factors that come up for moms with eating disorder histories that kind of lead down this path of stress again? Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, we've touched on one already. A big one is body image. Mm -hmm. So body changing, their bodies changing? Yes. So there's two things. Yeah, there's the literal, like your body literally changes a lot during pregnancy and postpartum, and then it doesn't necessarily go back to, you know, what it was before pregnancy. And there's, most women have some kind of grieving and new identity formation process around that. Mm -hmm. Or if they don't, they're swimming in diet culture, trying to get back to their pre-baby body, Mm -hmm. which is not possible. So there's that. There's a couple studies that I love that kind of showed the difference between like someone that develops an eating disorder and someone that has some body image issues that doesn't have an eating disorder. And basically what the research shows, and this totally fits with my experience and the clients that I work with, is there's a perceptual and an attitudinal and then a cognitive like dimension of body image. There's kind of like, okay, you know, I'm not going to say sizes or weights to not be triggering, but let's say, you know, you're a size da da da, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe you want to be a size da-da-da, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you know you'll never be a size da-da-da, 
right? Okay, so there's just that reality. And that's largely determined by genetics, by the way. That's not determined by like, you know, there is some aspect of how you're eating. I mean, if you're binging, 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 or restricting, 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 then you're going to change your body, but it's going to be temporary because your body has a natural set point and it's mostly genetically determined. Hmm. That's like a big lie that the diet industry is trying to, you know, not let you know. That right there is an entire episode in and of itself. Right? Oh my gosh. (laughs) So we've been being literally fed lies about what we're supposed to look like. Okay. Yep. Yep. Noted. Okay. It's kind of like, you know, well, I was going to use hair color analogy, but that's not the best one because you can change that. (laughs) (laughs) But like those fruit shapes, like I hate those fruit shape analogies. Like the body body is pear sized. Oh, right, right, right. Like, okay, but my body, I do have a somewhat thin body in terms of like the kind of natural spectrum of body types. And I only name that now because, of course, my body image critic would say, no, no, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. (laughs) I named that because it's a really important social justice piece around weight stigma. Hmm. So say more. Yeah, because I walk in the world with thin privilege, just like I walk in the world with a certain amount of privilege because I have whitish skin. Mm. And it's my job to be aware of that from a social justice standpoint, that I'm going to be treated different because we don't live in a health at every size, weight, neutral culture. We absolutely do not. Right. I'm Dr. Kat, host of the Mom and Mind podcast where we cover everything related to your mental wellness in pregnancy, loss, birth, and postpartum. It's more than just postpartum depression. I interview experts in the field, and we get to hear real stories of healing from courageous moms and dads. We know that you are not alone on this journey, and now you can know that too. Listen in to Mom and Mind wherever you listen to podcasts, on the pod network, or at momandmind.com. In terms of just being a person of color, there's a whole different set of stuff for that too, right? You mean in terms of body image or do you mean in terms of like lack of access to privilege kind of? Well, both. I mean, I think we were talking a little bit about this before we started how eating disorders largely are seen as like a white woman issue. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. And how we're leaving out a whole lot of other people who may be having eating disorder or body image related stress out of the conversation and out of the realm of getting adequate support. Yes. Okay. That is a great question. Okay. So no eating disorders are not just for white women. I'd love to say they're like an exclusive, you know, disorder because who wants an eating disorder ever? But no, there are many factors that contribute to developing an eating disorder, and they are not limited to white women. I'll just give a little vignette with obviously disguising any confidentiality concerns, but this is how it shows up in terms of difficulty accessing treatment, Mm -hmm. and I'll speak to kind of both the client and the professional side in this. I've worked for a lot of different eating disorder treatment centers. I'm in private practice now, but in the past I've worked for lots of different ones. And this one, we had an African-American woman client and we did a family group every week. And her mom literally would not come to family group because she said, that's a white girl disease. Mm -hmm. 
she would not come to family group. And it was tough because so on the other side, I'll say another piece that was really, we tried on the staff side, there was another woman and her mom did not speak English. And we tried and tried and tried to find, we had no bilingual therapists on staff. We tried and tried and tried to get a translator and could not find one. So we did have our mom come in for a family session, but the challenge was, because so no, this is the challenge, because one of the dynamics that often happens with eating disorders is the daughter is the parentified child. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes the daughter is kind of, not consciously, but has been taking care of her mom for her this whole is, life. This is a cross-culture? Well, this is a dynamic, yeah, this is a dynamic that I see cross-culturally. Okay. But one thing that showed up in treatment, which I felt horrible, like, because I saw it being reenacted was, so this mom of the first generation Vietnamese woman came in for a family session and the daughter was doing all the translating for her mom. Yeah. So she couldn't just get to be a client. It was awful. I could just see it happening in the session. Yeah, and I was like, oh, oh, this is our shortcoming on the treatment team. Mm -hmm. So I think it goes both ways. I think there's stigma on the side of clients coming into treatment. And I think there's work to be done on the provider side in terms of, you know, cross-cultural mm -hmm. competence. Mm -hmm. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So I think that you know, every time I talk to someone, I'm like, oh my gosh, we should do an entire series on this. It's so complex. There are so many factors that go into any type of complication. I don't like that word, but that's what's coming up. Whether it's related to mental health, physical health, eating disorders, you name it. There are so many factors that go into, and it's so hard to capture all of that in, you know, these 30, 40 minute conversations. But I really do appreciate you speaking to this kind of notion that eating disorders are for white women, because it does sound like from what you've said that a lot of other women are being left out of the conversation or being left out of the support or being left out of treatment. And we have a lot of work to do there. Yes. And I'll add in terms of inclusivity, so the myth, right, with eating disorders is eating disorders are for straight white adolescent women, right? That's kind of the myth. Like, mm. those are the people that develop eating disorders. Like straight white adolescents. Okay. Right? right? Yeah. And people of all sexual orientations and genders and gender identities can develop eating disorders. Eating mm -hmm. disorders, just like other issues people wrestle with, like mood disorders, for example, are often part of an attempt to work through a trauma, or mm -hmm. if we want to put it sort of in psychological terms, and they're also a kind of a misplaced rite of passage. Mm. Interesting. So like, for example, sometimes when someone is trying to come out mm -hmm. in the coming out process, sure. you know, that's when an eating disorder might develop, right? Those kinds of things. So they do see that, like an eating disorder can tend to develop during, and that makes sense with the myth around adolescence, right? Because that's a big rite of passage. Yeah, yeah, that makes but sense. But also in midlife, in pregnancy and postpartum, in right. the coming out process, in loss of a loved one after a traumatic incident, etc. Right. So thank you for speaking to that. And, you know, as you said, having a child is a rite of passage uh -huh. as well and can bring up a lot of things. And we took a slight bird walk, an important bird walk from the factors and triggers. Thank um, you. That, that might <laughs> bring you back. Bringing us back around. 
some of the triggers that may, for somebody who's had an eating disorder history, you spoke to body changes happening. What else might people notice? Well, let me say another thing about body image, and then I'll name some of the other factors. So the thing about body image that I took a bird walk around (laughs) never finishing was that women with either the history or current struggle with an eating disorder. So there's the thought about your body, and then there's the feelings about your body. Yeah. And, you know, most people, at least in this diet culture, until we obliterate that, have some kind of awareness cognitively and then a gap. Like they want to be this size, but they are this size. But their feelings about it, that's where the women with the history or current eating disorder have a huge gap. Mm have a huge gap. And how that shows up, for example, like postpartum, is that, you know, let's say a woman without an eating disorder, postpartum, most women have some body image stuff postpartum. And they're, you know, let's say they go back to work at three months or six months or whatever, whenever they go back to work, they might not be feeling great, you know, but they're kind of like, they hold it in a context, like, eh, I had a baby, like, you know, I grew a human, Mm -hmm. my body's different, you know, right. And so they might, not be thrilled about it, but they're kind of, they have some level of radical acceptance. A woman with a history of or currently struggling with an eating disorder, that's where she has trouble giving herself slack. And that's where it will take her like nine months to a year to be able to leave the house because she hates her body so much. Mm. That's the difference. Yeah. That's the difference. They wait till like they're perfect, which doesn't exist. They want to be through the struggle before mm-hmm. they talk about the struggle. And they don't realize that talking about the struggle is what gets them through the struggle. Right. Right. Because there's, I mean, I guess when you were saying that, I just thought, oh my gosh, that's a huge amount of shame to not be able to leave the house because of whatever, fear of judgment or the thought, you know, self-judgment. That's incredibly paralyzing. Yeah. And so people, you know, may not be talking about this at all. Yeah. Yeah. And let me come back before I forget, because you were asking about triggers. Yeah, yeah. So body image, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. Relapse into a mood disorder, that's a big one. Right. Past abuse triggers, Uh especially that come up around labor and delivery or breastfeeding. Mm. Lack of sleep. Mm -hmm. Food cravings, gestational diabetes, nausea Mm -hmm. related to pregnancy or, you know, throwing up related to pregnancy, you know, or increased hunger or difficulty with like regulating new hunger and satiety cues. Mm -hmm. Those can be really triggering because, you know, let's say someone's been in recovery for a long time and then all of a sudden like they're breastfeeding or something and they're famished all the time. It can feel like, oh my God, I'm binging again instead Mm -hmm. of like, no, I'm just really hungry because I'm breastfeeding. So I need all these extra food, you know, like I'm no, it's okay. I'm not binging. I can trust this increased hunger level. Mm, that's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I can see very quickly how complicated this can get internally, potentially all of these things going on and bringing up past feelings and past thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, as you were talking about it, I'm aware now that there are some people who are listening who don't really know what an eating disorder is. Maybe we should have started with this, but no better time than now. Can you give just a very brief primer on you know, there's a lot to say about what an eating disorder is, but the difference between a diagnosable eating disorder and then the other stuff, I guess. So I think the piece, if you're struggling, is 
I call it the part of you that knows, you know, that wise mind, that intuition, that gut sense. I think that part of you knows if you need help. Mm-hmm. You know, it just knows. Yep. And it's a quiet voice and you've usually been trying to avoid it for a long time and it's not going away. So that would be the place I would say, if you have any concerns, you know, if you feel that, then seek support. And in that sense, it doesn't matter if you have a fully diagnosable eating disorder or not, because support can only help. Sure. Right. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in terms of like, you know, diagnosable versus like subclinical eating disorder versus just living in um, non-weight neutral health at every size diet culture that we live in. Um. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. It's so complicated. Yeah. I thank you so much for bringing in that context because it's so important just to name that. Yeah. You know, you may have an eating disorder, you might not, but geez, the world we live in just, uh, there's so much pressure. Mm-hmm. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Okay, I'll let you go. (laughs) So in terms of like DSM diagnosis, there's anorexia, there's bulimia, there's binge eating disorder, and there's... Actually, I don't think EDNOS is in the DSM-5 anymore which is funny because that's what most eating disorders are. Mm-hmm. Not um, And then there's other ones. Yeah, thank you. And then there's other ones that probably like that are more unique to kids. So that's a whole nother podcast. So we yeah. won't go there. Yeah. But yeah, the symptoms would be, so anorexia tends to be more towards the restricting side, although you can be anorexia binge purge type, which means your body has a level of being underweight and your behaviors tend toward restricting food, but then they might, there's sort of two subtypes, they might just restrict, or you might restrict, 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 and then binge, or you might restrict, 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 and then binge and purge, and purge can be through throwing up, or it can be through overexercising. Bulimia is more either like normal eating, quote unquote, and then 
purging in some way, which could be throwing up. It could be fasting and it could be over-exercising or it could be some other things that I'm not going to name specifically because I don't want to give people ideas. But there are lots of different ways to do that. So that's bulimia. And then binge eating is, I'm trying to think if I can remember off the top of my head, the wording in the DSM. It's something to the effect of eating an amount of food larger than what could be considered normal in a very short amount of time with excessive guilt afterwards. Mm, okay. So, but what I would add to that is, first of all, the excessive guilt is important. Yeah. And second of all, everybody eats emotionally. So don't be diagnosing yourself if you had too much ice cream last night. Right. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that is totally in the realm of normal eating. Yeah, I think that's so important to note that emotional eating is part of normal eating. I learned that myself very recently and I just was like, oh, right, okay, that makes sense. It felt like it was not good, but it makes sense that it's still within the normal realm. Yes, yes. You know, I'll just throw this out here as a good resource. And I don't get anything out of this. I'm just sharing a good resource. Ellen Satter, E-L-L, I think it's E-N, and then S-A-T-T-Y-R. It's a good resource for moms, too, because she has these guidelines for feeding your kids, which are super helpful in terms of modeling normal eating behavior and helping your kids continue to trust their hunger and satiety cues and intuitively eat and trust their bodies. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the division of responsibility. Like it's different for different ages, but the kids generally get to, usually it's the parents decide what and the kids decide like how much Mm -hmm. that's that's Mm -hmm. a general guideline. But she had this, what made me think of it was she had this definition of normal eating that included like, yeah, most people emotionally eat. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that's like in the realm of if eating wasn't emotional, we'd eat food pellets. (laughs) Right. Right. Right? Uh, Not the matrix. (laughs) Right. I feel like there's whoever's listening, there's like a collective sigh of relief. Oh, good. Yes. I'm okay. Yes. You're okay. Even if you do have an eating disorder, that's a big part of the work. Right. Is realizing you're okay. Like shame is such a big piece of eating disorders. Yeah. And that's another talk about like sort of triggers and what contributes to developing one. There's certain sort of like temperamental genetic like sensitivities that have to do with perfectionism and low tolerance for negative affect and high level of sensitivity to rejection that... Yeah. That, so that's a lot of the work around recovery. There's so much in here. I feel like we could talk forever about this, but you have put all of this into a book for people to access specifically related to pregnancy and postpartum. Can you give us a quick sort of glimpse of what the book is about? Sure. So it's a lot of stuff we talked about. So there's a chapter on body image. There's a chapter on food. There's a chapter on labor and delivery. There's a chapter on perinatal mood disorders. There's a chapter on how the heck do I practice spirituality when a baby is spewing poop at me? <laughs> um, oh my goodness. I hope on, that's the actual title of the chapter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's a chapter on advanced maternal age. There's a chapter on going back to work. So there's okay. a very quick overview. Okay, awesome. And so this is a recovery guide for people during pregnancy and postpartum related to eating disorders. Yes, yes. 
And there are a couple topics that I missed in the book, mostly because of my own, like these are not areas of expertise for me. So like, for example, fertility, mm. adoption, surrogacy, miscarriage. Mm. So I'm doing a telesummit coming up with the book and I'm going to try and get all the, oh, exercise and recovery. I'm going to try and get those into the telesummit. Okay. Can you tell us more about the telesummit? Sure. It'll come out in February with the book. And it's basically just going to be a whole bunch of expert interviews on these same topics. And then hopefully adding the topics that I missed in the book, like for example, around fertility and miscarriage. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So I'd love for you now, if we can shift a little bit into hopeful messages, things that you've seen in terms of how people have recovered through this. I mean, people who are struggling right now who feel like, oh my gosh, this is so much to overcome. What kind of hopeful messages do you have for them? Okay. Well, my two sort of messages of like action steps would be get support Mm -hmm. to, you know, decrease isolation and lower the bar on your expectation of perfectionism and achievement. So those would be my sort of two like action steps. And then in terms of hope, Here's a couple metaphors that I'll throw out. One is orchids and dandelions. Have you heard this one? No. Okay. So orchids are basically like, as you know, probably if you know anything about plants, they're like highly sensitive plants. Yeah. And they have to be in the right environment to thrive. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. They just need to be in the right environment to thrive. And if they're not in the right environment, they're not going to thrive. Mm-hmm. Dandelions, on the other hand, you can throw them on a sidewalk and they will find the soil between the cracks and thrive. Mm-hmm. So if you are an orchid, stop pathologizing yourself about being sensitive and get yourself in the right environment. And what I mean by that is get off the losing the baby weight social media sites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, surround yourself with other new moms that are being authentic find other moms that have been through it that can mentor you and tell you the truth that you're growing into your new identity and that you're going to thrive. And right now it's just about surviving and that's okay. Which leads into the other kind of plant metaphor I have, which is, sorry, I'm forgetting the name of this plant. I have a picture of it on my Instagram feed. (laughs) If you want to go look it up. But anyway, it sort of looks like a cactus, but it's like flat and it sort of looks like a rock. It's like a cactus without spikes and so my little one bought this plant and we've been watering it and watering it and watering it and it's just sat there for like years and a couple weeks ago all of a sudden it had a blossom Mm -hmm. and so that's the message I hope of hope that I have for new moms is you know how they say the first five years for kids like give yourself the first five years too Yeah. Thank you for that. I appreciate the relatively long length of time that you're offering for people to grow into their new identity or patterns or self or whatever. For some moms who feel anxious and worried, five years sounds like a long time. But it doesn't have to take five years. It doesn't have to take five years. Right. But I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone's in their own healing process and in their own time. And it just goes to this whole idea that you bounce back and that it is quick and it's supposed to happen in a certain time frame. But no, it happens as it needs to. And I just really appreciate you giving people that space and time to work within. Yeah, you don't have to bounce. You can crawl. 
Hey, thank you for that. Okay, well, I appreciate so much all of the work that you do and your time and the book. I'm going to be sure to have people go to your website, drlindashanti.com, so they can find out more about this, about your book and about the online summit and get connected to you to get support. Thank you so much for hosting this podcast. Sure. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate you. You too. Thank you again, Linda, for coming on and sharing this information with us. I think it's so important that we begin to understand all of the ways in which our past experience is affecting this transition into motherhood and parenthood. There's just so many things that once we understand and can kind of see the layout of how it might affect us can really, really change our experience. If you'd like to get connected with our guest today, go to drlindashanti.com and you can connect with her on Instagram, Dr. Linda Shanti or Recovery Mama or on Facebook at Recovery Mama. And as usual, if this is your first time with us, please do subscribe to this podcast and share it with everyone. The more people that have access to this free information and who can learn about the various ways that our paths and our mental health can be affecting us, I just think we'll be all so much better for it. Come find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and join our Mom and Mind Connection Facebook group. Thanks so much for being with us. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.